Good morning. We'll be reading three passages this morning, brief ones, starting with Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when we, when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon Him, on Him, makes Himself pure, purifies Himself just as He is pure. And finally, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And I promise we'll get the context of that verse when we get a little further into the message. Dear Father, show us this morning Your plan to fully redeem the wreckage that we have made of Your image in us. And show us, Lord, how You are already at work redeeming and using that image even now. We ask this in the name of the perfect image bearer, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a, a little modern day parable that is about the indispensable connection between image and agency. As with all parables, it's not a true story. But the critical elements of it match up with the experience that many people in this room have had in dealing with fellow human beings that should help clarify a little bit why God has to redeem His image in us. It's a, it's a tale of two salesmen and a brilliant engineer. The engineer's name was Andrew. And ever since he was a little boy, Andrew had been completely fascinated with the idea, idea of creating a flying car. As a teenager, he came up with dozens of drawings that he had collected that reflected designs that he had in mind for such a car. When he got to college, he double majored in mechanical and aeronautical engineering. After decades working as a respected engineer for a commercial aircraft manufacturer, and after another decade of working on his personal dream, 
Andrew came up with a viable design for a flying car. A car that could be sold profitably for about the same price as a Honda Accord or a Toyota Camry. And this flying car was more fuel efficient than any land-based car. It had a navigation system so sophisticated, so replete with redundancies, that it was almost impossible for it ever to crash into anything in the air or on the ground. All that the owner of one of these cars would have to do is verbally tell it the destination to which he wanted to go and then sit back while the car would take him to that destination as the crow flies. Andrew had already secured enough venture capital to create several working prototypes that proved that every aspect of his design was rock solid. He was excited beyond words to finally be able to bring his amazing innovation in travel to the world. He didn't even care about the money. All he needed now was to secure enough additional capital to move it to mass production. So he needed someone with real vision and great communication skills to sell his idea to prospective investors. Now Andrew had a son, an only child named Jason. And Jason had just graduated from college, and guess what he was? He was an engineer. He was like his father in many other ways, too. He had always been very, very close to his dad, so he knew all about this, this dream that his father had. He knew a whole lot about the car itself. And he also shared his dad's personal character. Both were men of great integrity and honesty. And both of them strongly believed that that the way to sell any legitimate product or idea was simply to educate people and then let them make the decision. Because if it was a viable product, it would sell itself. Jason was as zealous about the car as his dad was, and Jason was kind of a teacher at heart, so his dad figured he was probably the best person to pitch it on his behalf. But they had a very limited window of time to get this thing into production, or else they'd lose the amazing team they had assembled because they wouldn't be able to keep paying them. And they had, in order to, to court all these investors, they had to travel to many different places over that short period of time. So they knew they needed one more guy. They needed one more person to pitch this venture. So after a painstaking search, Andrew hired a highly touted marketing wizard named Marcus to help move things forward. After sharing his vision for the car with Marcus and providing extensive training about both the car and the company, Andrew handed Marcus half of the list of prospective investors and turned him loose. But within just a couple of months, it became painfully apparent to Andrew that he and Marcus had very little in common. Marcus was arrogant. He was pushy. He was unwilling to entertain even the simplest questions about the car. He had far more faith in his own powers of persuasion than he had in Andrew or in Andrew's amazing invention. In fact, when Andrew met with Marcus to try one more time to communicate his passion and to, to see if he could get on the same page with this man, 
he realized that Marcus wasn't even particularly excited about the car itself. He was excited about himself. His interest was purely in his ability to make the sale. He flatly told Andrew he didn't need to have any more meetings with him and that he didn't need to know any more than he already knew about the car. He insisted that he could sell ice chests in Greenland if he wanted to. It wasn't long until the most promising investors on Marcus's half of the list walked away. And Andrew let Marcus go so he could go sell something else to someone else. It turned out that none of that mattered because while all that was going on with Marcus, Andrew's son Jason was having marvelous success. Within months, they had acquired all the capital that they needed and they were confident that the investors were the kind of people they actually wanted to do business with. The car went into production, and within five years, mere earthbound cars were as obsolete as cassette tapes are today. Andrew learned a very important lesson from his experience with those two salesmen. And that lesson is, it takes a good image bearer to be a good agent. The person who is most like you, the person who knows you best, will do the best job of representing you to others and of acting on your behalf, of doing the work that you have assigned him to do the way you want it done. There are many businessmen in this, and, and businesswomen in this room who know exactly how that works. In the first chapter of the Bible, on the sixth day of God's marvelous work of creation, God made a decree. He said, let us make man in our image. And yes, I believe the plural is the plural of the Trinity. According to our likeness, and let them rule over, in effect, every living thing that we've created. That was the decree. God then proceeded to do exactly what he said he was going to do. In verse 27, he said, and God, cre it says, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God gave Adam and Eve their assignment to act as his agents in his new creation, to expand his dwelling place among men until it filled the whole earth and to exercise dominion over His creation on His behalf, over all the life that He had created on earth. In both the declaration of God's intention to create man in verse 26, and then again in the narrative of how that declaration worked out in, in real history in verses 20, 28 and 29, the starting point, the starting point, is God's image in man. That brief passage declares four times that God created man in His own image. That He made man like Himself. So why is that important? Why did God make men to be like Him? In other words, what's the point of God's image in man? One of the most helpful verses for answering that question is a verse that explains why God is redeeming His image in man. It's a verse we've considered several times in this series. 
it explicitly tells us why Jesus gave his life to redeem men. That verse is Titus 2, verse 14. It says, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There are three major parts to that statement. Jesus died to make us his, in other, to, in other words, to renew his, to renew God's relationship with man. He died to make us holy, to renew God's image in man. And he died to make us useful, to renew man's agency on God's behalf. If you look at those same three components in terms of what this redemption accomplishes in us and through us, Jesus died so that we would enjoy God and God would enjoy us. The Westminster Catechism got it right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And by enjoy Him, that encompasses everything that has to do with, with our fear of God, our worship of God, our love of God. Our, de- our devotion to God. We are His inheritance and He is ours. He died to make us holy. He died so that we would share and show off His character. He died to make us useful so that we would serve God doing His work His way. Now even though all of those purposes focus on different, each of those focuses on kind of a different aspect of why God redeemed, and one of them focuses more on image than the other two. That's the make us holy part. The reality is that all three of those depend on the renewal of God's image in man. All three require that we become like God. First, in order to rightly know God, to enjoy Him, and to be enjoyed by Him, we have to be like Him. We have to share enough of His nature to be able to relate to Him. Ants and aardvarks may benefit from the character of God, but they will never know God the way we who were created in the image of God were designed to know Him. Secondly, in order to rightly display God's character, to show God off in His creation, we have to be like Him. We have to be like the one we represent. If we're not, we will misrepresent Him. Like Marcus misrepresented Andrew. In order to rightly do God's work, God's way, and to do it joyfully as He intended, we have to be like the one whose work we are called to do. Our agenda has to be His agenda. Our vision has to be His vision. Our passion has to be His passion. Otherwise, we'll be doing the wrong work. The reason it's so important for God to redeem His image in us is so that we will be and do what God created us to be and do. In fact, if you take God's image away from man, you eliminate man's reason for existence. Alright, that's the point of God's image in us. When will God's image be restored in us? Well, it's clear that the image of God will not be perfectly restored until we are glorified. 
until the day when God puts sin completely away from us and gives us eternal resurrection bodies and we stand face to face with Him dwelling with Him forever. That'll be the day when He finishes conforming us to Christ. What will that be like? Or, or rather, what will we be like on that day? The answer is, we will be like Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 2, John said, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. See, our appearing, and that word means, that's the word epiphany, our Appearing, our unveiling depends on His unveiling. When He returns to dwell among His people, that's when we will be manifest as those whom God created to be His. We will have fully put on Christ. We will be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. By the way, I don't think we can see Him just as He is until we're like Him. Now, Bear with me on this. I find it very interesting that the popular view of heaven says in effect that God's image in us will finally be fully restored just when He stops using it. Just when our work as agents of God and His creation is done and we start spending the rest of eternity in one big long worship service. That sounds like pretty bad timing to me. Now, if that were how the Bible actually presented things, it wouldn't matter how it sounds to me. <laughs> but I don't believe that's what the Bible is saying about these things. Early in this series, I showed you a photo of a tornado-mangled farm combine and then another picture of what that combine looked like when it was brand new, before the tornado. The point of those photos was that much of what God has revealed to us about how things will be in eternity after He has finished undoing the curse is seen by looking back at how He designed those things to be in the first place before sin and the curse entered the world. I strongly believe based on all that the Bible tells us that our agency on God's behalf will not end when we get to eternity. It will continue throughout eternity. And that agency won't apply only to our worship of God. Our agency on God's behalf in eternity will be patterned after His original design for our agency in the garden before sin and the curse entered the world. I strongly believe that our agency on God's behalf will just be getting started in earnest when we come into eternity. In what's known as the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus spoke of two good servants and one bad servant. The two good servants took money that the Master gave to them just before He went away and they invested that money. And each of them reaped a 100% profit 
on that money. The bad servant didn't trust his master's motives and he buried the money so when the master came back, he didn't have anything except the original amount. Now in that parable, when the master returned, when the master returned, he commended the two good slaves with exactly the same words. He said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. And that great parable falls in the middle of an extended declaration by Jesus Christ about what His coming kingdom will be like. I believe that when we who belong to Christ fully enter into the presence of our Master and into the joy of our Master, He will have much for us to do and to accomplish on His behalf. I believe our agency at that point will kick into high gear because we'll finally, we'll finally be able to exercise that agency without sin and without resistance or opposition from the place, from God's creation. Now, why would we think that God would have creative and constructive tasks for Adam to accomplish on his half before the curse and that He would have creative and constructive tasks for us to accomplish under the curse, but nothing for us to accomplish other than corporate worship after the curse? Do we actually believe that God somehow forfeited His original intention for man to exercise dominion over His creation on His behalf? I don't think so. Revelation 22, verse 5 says, in the new heavens, the new earth, that we who will inhabit the new Jerusalem will reign forever and ever. For how long? That matches up, by the way, perfectly, perfectly with Daniel chapter 7, written nearly half a millennium before Christ came the first time. But it's talking about when He comes the next time. Daniel 7 verse 18 says, but the saints of the highest one, remember that phrase, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And verse 27 of that same chapter says, then... The sovereignty, listen to this, the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And you can read that as the people, comma, the saints of the highest one. His kingdom, the highest one, His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. How will Jesus exercise that reign over every dominion, over every name that is named both in heaven and on earth and under the earth? He will exercise that reign through the saints of the highest one. That's what the passage says. I'm not making this stuff up. Beloved, we will rule even over angels. God's dominion over all of creation, over a reconciled heaven and earth will be carried out through redeemed man. God is going to have a whole lot for us to do. Us who are joint heirs 
was His beloved Son. And what will make us able to do all of those things well is that we will be like the One who does all things well. It takes a good image bearer to be a good agent. That's what will happen, I believe, when Christ returns. But that restoration of God's image in man starts now. God's work to restore His image isn't on hold until that glorious day. The very next verse of the passage we read in 1 John chapter 3 says it starts now. 1 John 3, verse 3, Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Which hope? The hope that when we see Him, we'll be like Him. The hope of our fully redeemed image. When we hope in that work that Christ has promised to do in us, He does it now. Not all of it. But He's in the process of doing it now. God started conforming you to the image of His Son the day that He brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. And He's in the process of making you more and more like Jesus Christ right now. If you don't cooperate, it's more painful. But He is in the process of conforming you to Christ now. And we have God's promise that He's going to finish what He started in every redeemed child. Most of you know, many of you know Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But what about the next two verses that tell us what that good is toward which God is working all things? He says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. It is our inevitable destiny as children of God to be conformed to our Savior and our Master. And that, that marvelous work of God to redeem His image in men is happening now. So that's the why and the when. Let's look at the how. How will God's image be restored in us? His answer comes in two words. In Christ. How do we who dwell in these dying vessels, still struggling every day against the world, the flesh, and the devil, possibly become effective image bearers and agents of God now. I got to attend a meeting a couple of weeks ago with a pretty small group, about 20 people, and one of the two presenters was Dr. Charles Ryrie. Some of you have his name on your Bibles. He's getting up there in age. He does not move around very quickly anymore, but he's still sharp as a tack. And he said something, something in that meeting that I'll, I'll never forget. He cited James 1, verse 22, which says, but prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then he said, James picked his words very carefully. 
You see, doing the Word and being a doer of the Word are not the same thing. He went on to explain that he had recently taken up swimming at his doctor's strong recommendation to help with rehab after an extended illness. And he said, I've learned how to swim, and I swim with some regularity, but I'm not a swimmer. I know people who are swimmers, and I'm not one of them. And he said, and I know people who do things that are in the Word of God, but they are not doers of the Word. Let me give you a couple of quotes from a real doer of the Word so you'll know what one looks like. John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, The Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. When Jesus says that you may marvel, you know something good is happening. John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Those words, of course, were spoken by the only perfect agent of God who has ever lived. And the reason He's the perfect agent is because He's the perfect image bearer. He never said a word that God had not given Him to speak. He never did anything that God had not given Him to do. And He's the Son of God. If anyone ever had had cause to put confidence in His own agenda, Jesus did. But Jesus never had an agenda other than His Father's agenda. There are many, many professing believers today who are convinced that in order to be well-adjusted, useful Christians, they have to be self-actualized. They have to know themselves. They have to be comfortable with themselves. They have to love themselves in order to be useful to God. You know what God's response to all that is? You're not even close. Let me give you a short list of pursuits that are of little or no real benefit to you, and some of you won't like the list. Understanding how badly your parents messed you up. Understanding how severely a horrible episode or pattern of abuse to which you were subjected when you were young, has scarred you for life. Figuring out which crises in your past resulted in which of your fears or anxieties or facial tics. Figuring out how to be less socially awkward. Figuring out how to cure your stammering or stuttering or acne. These things are of no consequence to God's intention for you. And getting answers to such things does not make you a better agent of God. In fact, vigorously pursuing answers to such things the way the world tells you that you absolutely must 
distracts and cripples you from being an effective agent of God. And you know why? Because you're not here to represent you. You're here to represent God. And the way you will do that assignment most effectively, most effortlessly, most joyfully, is when you get out of Christ's way. Our agency on behalf of God is Christ's agency in us. And if you don't understand what that means, find out what that means because that is the heart of how you become useful to God. There's really only one good image bearer. And our assignment is to make sure that He is using us as His vessels by getting out of the way and letting Him do so. Galatians 2.20 And you can tell me if this isn't what Paul is saying. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. I don't trust myself for anything, Paul is saying. I don't depend on myself for anything. I live by faith in the perfect image bearer because He's the only one worthy of my trust. In 2 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3, Paul presents a, a remarkable, remarkable defense for his own ministry. He explains how it is that he knows God has used him powerfully to accomplish his work among the Corinthian believers who were a pretty motley crew by most measures. He says, 2 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? No, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. And then he says, and such confidence, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. A little later in that same chapter and continuing into chapter 4, and I encourage you to read that whole passage from 3.18 to 4.17, Paul talks about how God is already transforming us into the image of Christ from glory to glory. That means from one display of God's glory in us to the next. He is transforming us to the image of Christ. And he says that that transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul's not saying... Go look at yourself in a mirror and you'll know what Christ is like. No, he's saying go look at Jesus Christ and you'll see what God is doing with you.
as we behold the image of the Lord, as we look intently at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to use Paul's words, we see what God is making of us. We see the One whom God is working to display to others through us. The One that He wants to show off through these vessels. How does the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God get displayed in us? Those are Paul's words. How do we who are still mortal earthen vessels come to be bearers to this world of the incomparable treasure of His incomparable light, of His unfading glory? There's only one way. By the power of the Spirit working in us. It has nothing to do with the vessels. It's all about Him in us. If every ounce of your sufficiency, your adequacy to act as an agent of God comes from Christ in you, and not from you, where should your attention be focused? On you or on Christ? How much of your day is spent thinking about you and how much of your day is spent looking Christ? Whom should you be obsessed with knowing and following? Our agency is Christ's agency in us and it's Christ in us, not Christ in Mike or Ron or Robert or Debbie. How many Christians does it take to represent Christ in this world? This is not a light bulb joke. All of us. Together. I've belabored this point sufficiently in previous weeks, so I won't spend a lot of time on it today. But we seriously need to take this seriously. I can assure you on firm biblical footing that God does. If we are not working together to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we're not doing God's work on God's terms. And God's terms are the only terms that mean anything. If we are not expanding God's dwelling place among men by spreading the knowledge of Jesus Christ together, you know what we're depriving the world of? The full image of Jesus Christ. Because the only way the world sees as much of Christ as God intends them to see is when He sees Christ in Christ's body. Not just in you. So what are we supposed to do to become better image bearers both individually and corporately? Well, it's simple. It's not easy. But it's simple. Jesus is the perfect agent of the Father. He's the perfect man because He's the perfect image bearer. So the very best that we will ever do as imperfect image bearers and agents of God is to know Him and do what He does. The bedrock of becoming conformed to Jesus Christ is knowing Jesus Christ. Colossians 1. All of Colossians 1 is amazing. Colossians 1 verse 9, Paul is 
talking to these dear saints in Colossae. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask God that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What comes before pleasing behavior? On what does pleasing behavior depend in that verse? Knowing Him. Knowing His way. His will. Knowing what pleases Him. Knowing what His character is like. It's interesting that this change that God is working into us, this change by which we come to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, which by the way Jesus said was what He did, begins and continues with knowledge. Not mere knowledge of facts. Knowledge of Him. And what comes next in Colossians is no accident. It's one of the two most powerful declarations in the New Testament of Christ as the perfect image bearer of God. Verse 15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. The two things He's going to reconcile? Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. And then verse 19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. All the fullness of what? You look at the next chapter, it says all the fullness of Godness. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. That passage is just amazing if you spend some time with it. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. The only man who ever got man's agency on God's behalf right, exactly right, is Jesus Christ. And that's because He is the image of the invisible God. The most effective agent of God is the one who is most like God. That means Jesus is the perfect agent of God because He is just like God. And that's because He is God. What makes us good and effective agents of God is simply Christ in us. Our agency is His agency in us. That's why we have to know Him. We don't have to know ourselves. We have to know Him. That's what we were created for. In Philippians 3, Paul said that he counts everything about himself, all the things that men revere most, to be filthy garbage compared with the surpassing value of just one thing. Just one pursuit. Just one obsession. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. How do you come to really know Jesus Christ? You have to do two things. You have to know His Word. 
Go home and look really hard. This is a homework assignment. Go home and look really hard at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and ask yourself, how do I come to have the mind of Christ? It'll tell you. Your one and only access point to know the deep things of God, to know the things that are fully known only by the Spirit of God, your one and only source for putting on the mind of Christ is to know the Word. There are many people in this room who simply do not take that seriously. And until you do, you will not and you cannot have the personal, intimate knowledge of God that God intends for you to have. It's not possible. That's not a burden, beloved. It's the greatest pursuit of all. To behold God by looking at what He's revealed of Himself. You have to know Him. The second thing is you have to be a doer of His Word. Let the imitation of Jesus Christ define who you are. The only way you will ever personally know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, as Paul said was His sole objective in life to know, is if you share firsthand in His death and in His life. That knowledge is gained only by doing what He did. Love others as He has loved you. Forgive others as He has forgiven you. Serve others as He has served you. Lay down your life and take up His life. His is a life of great suffering for a time. But it is also the one and only path to His glory. Dear Father, I pray with all my heart that we won't take these things lightly. You created man to be like You. And when we threw Your image away and chose to represent ourselves, You decreed to save us and to redeem that image forever. And You are already doing it. Dear Father, we pray that You will burn these things into our hearts that we will, that we will not rest until we truly understand what Your Word tells us about being bearers of the image of Jesus Christ and agents of Almighty God. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.